one of the most common Christian prayers over the years, the centuries. It's become a song, even. It is, revive us, O Lord. You ever heard anybody pray that before? You ever prayed that? Revive, bring revival. Throughout American history, we've had, from what we can tell, widespread revival nationwide four times. There was the first great awakening back in the 1700s, spurred on by the preaching of two guys, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. It was estimated at that time, George Whitfield would go all over the country, or the colonies at that time, and preach. But the estimation was, because he was so widespread, up to 80% of the colonial population heard him preach during that period of time. And God supernaturally powered his voice. That even a man who was a self-proclaimed, I don't even know what you call him, he, he, he didn't necessarily say he would believe in Jesus, but he was open to having a conversation. Benjamin Franklin was friends with George Whitfield, and he was curious about his voice. And so he went to one of those revival meetings where Whitfield was preaching, and uh, Franklin began to mark off the distance of how far his voice traveled. And he was able to walk several blocks making turns in the city, New York City, or no, it was Philadelphia, and still be able to hear his voice in among the buildings and having made twists and turns in the city. And so during that time with Whitfield preaching all over the place and Jonathan Edwards preaching, people were say, getting saved uh, uh, by the thousands, laying the spiritual groundwork for a burgeoning nation. Sometime after that, in the 1790s on into the early 1800s, the Second Great Awakening came under the preaching of a man named Charles Finney. What's remarkable about Finney is, is he solidified in, in the minds of all of us that we should know from Scripture is that prayer always comes before revival. Always. Finney had a man who would go around and go into cities who would pray before Finney came in preaching, several weeks in advance. There was one time this man and a couple of guys who were going to pray with him went into this one city to begin praying before Finney came to preach and bring revival. And they went to this bed and breakfast, and they locked themselves in the room. And they were there for three days, never coming out of the room. And the lady who ran the bed and breakfast was worried about them, and she went to Finney when he came in town and said, these guys are in the room. There's sounds coming from the room, and they haven't left the room, and they don't want any food or anything. I don't know what's going on. And she told them who it was, and Finney said, oh, don't worry about them. They're just, they're just praying. What's written on that man's tombstone? Now you can even go and see it. I think it's in New York State, upstate somewhere. Uh, it says, uh, uh, partner with Finney, mighty in prayer. And through that, this is, this is just mind-boggling. It was under Charles Finney's preaching that the tent revival became a thing. Sawdust spread over the ground, the tents outside, and they would have these massive, massive revivals and see thousands and thousands and thousands of people saved. That, was, that ended about 1840. A number of years later, in 1857, this lasted for two years, this is the third Great Awakening, 1857, there was a guy named Jeremiah Lanfear. He began a lunch prayer meeting in New York City, and nobody came. 
A handful of people, maybe, would come. Not a whole lot of people. He did it at lunch every day in New York City and did not see very many people come for weeks. And then the stock market crashed. And he had standing room only on the steps outside the building. People would come every single day. This wasn't just a once a week deal, once a month deal. Every single day, people would forego their lunch to come to Lanfear's meetings. And they would be there to find standing room only. They would go to the windows, open the windows and stand outside so they could hear. And it was massive and became even bigger. And it began to spread from there as people got saved all over the country. All over the country for weeks. Every week during those two years, 1857 to 1859, 10,000 people became church members every single week. Can you imagine that? Another mind-boggling deal. During that two-year period, nationwide, one million people got saved. And that's the third Great Awakening in a two-year time span. And then 100 years passed. In the 1960s and 1970s, there was something that was, there were these people who came, young people and hippies, that some of the, the more seasoned church people wanted nothing to do with. They didn't like them, they didn't like the way they smelled, they didn't like the way they dressed, they didn't like the way they looked. But there was one guy who began to preach to those people, said Jesus loves everybody the same. His man was named Chuck Smith. And, and what began then was what was dubbed the Jesus Movement in the 60s and 70s, that saw thousands and thousands, there's actually a movie being made right now about this period of time. Um, it's being, uh, they, I think they just wrapped filming. It's gonna come out either later this year or next year about the Jesus movement. Um, and uh, uh, thousands and thousands of people got saved and it culminated in this massive, this, I mean, tens and of thousands and tens of thousands of people gathered at this, this, this uh, uh, event stadium place in Texas and Billy Graham preached and saw the majority of the people there get saved in this Jesus movement. And so what we've seen, there's been other revivals here and there, but those are the four of the largest scale that we've seen in American history at least. There's been others around the world, but here, and so the question is, can revival happen again? And actually, what characterizes revival? Like, how do you know it's happening? What does revival look like? Well, when it comes and when it happens, this is, these are some things that, that transpire. There's increased humility. There's increased financial giving because there's increased trust in God. There's increased church attendance. There's increased salvations. There's increased baptisms. There's increased kindness and compassion, and grace, and mercy, and forgiveness, all over the place. Without restraint, it's just poured out. Every time revival breaks out, every one of these elements is a part of it. But what is revival? At least as we often use that term, and as we often think about it. Let me give you a definition. This is how we think of it. As a widespread, renewed interest in spiritual things, done exclusively by God, that we witness ourselves. And so we look at this and say, okay, we've seen these revivals, we've talked about these revivals, we've heard about these revivals, First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, Third Great Awakening, Jesus Movement. What exactly does Scripture say about this? Were there revivals in Scripture? Yeah. There were. If you read the Old Testament, they happened frequently. Because what would happen is God would do something mighty for Israel, 
Israel would praise God, and then they would lose their way and go off and do their own thing for two, three, four decades. And then things would get terrible for them, and they would have a revival and turn back to God. And then God would come in and rescue them and do something incredible, and they would praise God, and then they would lose their faith for one, two, three, four decades. And then they would have a revival. So it happened frequently for them. But we're going to look at one particular instance. In the book of Haggai, which I'm sure you are all very familiar with, I told Katie last night, I don't know if I've ever preached from Haggai before. Uh, If you're going to use a Bible on the pew rack, it's on page 791. Haggai, it comes after Zephaniah. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Right at the end of the Old Testament. Haggai chapter 1. Haggai was a prophet uh, at the time that Darius was king and Israel was in captivity. Haggai chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is is significant. Let's just point this out. God says the people say it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is the temple. And the temple for the Israelites represented God's presence. So basically what they're saying is, it's not yet time to have God's presence with us. Let's put it, let's just wait a little bit. The time's not right. The situation's not exactly as it needs to be. So they're putting it off. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Basically, look at your life. Or to put it in a term for my teenage years, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Some of you are with me. My generation. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while your house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So he says it again, emphasis here. And then he gives them, here's the instruction. All right, it's time. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You ever, those of you who have children, tell them to do something and they don't do it. You tell them to do it again, they don't do it. You tell them to do it again, they don't do it. Like, empty the dishwasher. Empty the dishwasher. Empty the, open the dishwasher, take the plates, put them in the cabinet, get the silverware, put it in the drawer. You walk through the steps. That kind of feels like what God's doing to the people. Go into the mountains, cut the wood, build the house. He's kind of giving them a step-by-step process here. Guys, I told you, build my house. You're living, you, you situated your own house. Why didn't you do mine? You cared about everything being good and comfortable for you, but you didn't care about the Lord's presence being in among you. They had misplaced priorities. They valued themselves in their own wants and comforts. And that led to an intentional delay of the things of God, of the movement of God in among their lives. The temple, representing God's presence, was left in ruins. 
know, they were happy to, to acknowledge, to generally acknowledge God from a distance. Oh, yeah, we, we follow God. We worship God. They'll, they'll say it, but they're not actually doing it. They acknowledge him of a, uh, from a distance, but they're reluctant to specifically invite the Lord into the inner workings of their day-to-day involvement. Which, because bringing God into our day-to-day involvement involves effort. It involves life adjustment. And if we're honest with ourselves, it involves quite a bit of disruption if you introduce God into your day-to-day. If you introduce God into what you binge-watch, at night when everybody's in bed. If you introduce God into the conversations you have, if you introduce God when your alarm goes off in the morning, if you introduce God in the language you speak at work or at school, it causes disruption. So we see here in Haggai, the people knowing that introducing the Lord into their lives causes disruption, they kept putting it off. Like he said in verse 2, or verse uh, uh, four, your house lie, lies in ruins, or I guess verse two, uh, the time has not yet come. It's not yet. They keep putting it off because disruptions are easy to delay, but hard to do. Disruptions are easy to delay, easy to put off, easy to procrastinate, but they're hard to actually initiate and get in it. You know what authors who, who write incredible books say is the hardest part of writing a book starting it starting it because they know what's the the rest of it will come and it's going to be a great disruption of their lives because they have to dedicate the moments to this thing but starting it is difficult it's easy to put off it's easy to delay just as have you ever uh uh, you know know you have a project to do in the house no, you got to vacuum, or no, you got to clean this, or no, you got to uh, put up that thing of laundry, or, or no, you got to empty the dishwasher. And, and if everything else comes to your mind to distract you from doing the one thing you know to do that really would only take about five seconds, but you don't do it because you're distracted by something else? Anybody? Just me? Okay, thank you. Um, we're in the same boat here. Y'all are my people. And it's easy, to put, it's easy to delay what would be, or what we've convinced ourselves of would be a disruption but it's difficult to actually get involved and do it. But to really think about it, the amount of value we give a thing determines the amount of disruption we allow that thing to have in our lives. If we give the thing great value, we embrace the disruption. Marriage. Getting married and moving in with somebody of the opposite sex is a huge disruption and wake-up call. Amen? You learn a lot about yourself. As I tell people when I do premarital counseling, you never realize how selfish you really are until you get married. And then you thought you got rid of it, and then you have kids. <laughs> and you realize there's still a lot there. <laughs> how selfish I am, even now, having had been married as long as we have and having as many kids as we do, it's still there. But the amount of value we, we give to something determines the amount of disruption we allow that thing to have in our lives. So we have to remember that when we pray, revive us, O Lord, we really need to be ready for the disruption. If we really value the Lord and we really value revival and we really value all the the life change and, and the phenomenal things we read in the book of Acts, then we have to understand disruption is coming. 
It's going, I mean, it, it is. It's going to disrupt. It's going to change everything. We may say, okay, I'm comfortable with some of the change, but I don't know about all of it. I mean, you know, as long as he doesn't change when I wake up in the morning, or as long as he doesn't change what I eat, or as long as he doesn't change, you know, uh, my job, as long as he doesn't change my income, as long as he doesn't change my schedule at nighttime. You know, I know we, we do soccer and baseball, and we got basketball coming and, and all these, and track and all these sports, but as long as he doesn't touch, you know, Friday nights at 7 o'clock, I'm good. Following the Lord and actively pursuing revival causes disruption. Quite possibly of the thing we value the most. Because whether we are ready to admit it or not, most of us have things in our lives, we won't come out and say it, things we would consider to be non-negotiable. That if the Lord asks us to sacrifice that thing, we would hesitate. Ooh, I don't know about that, Jesus. That was, not, that was Satan. That was not Jesus who said that. Mm. Jesus would not ask me to sacrifice that. Mm-mm. Mm. He knows better. He, he gave me the thing. He would not ask me to sacrifice the thing he gave me. Let's ask Abraham how that goes. Abraham had a thing that he prayed for and prayed for and prayed for. And God gave it to him. A son. And then what did God say? Sacrifice him. And Abraham did or started to, God stopped him. There should never be anything in our lives as followers of Jesus that we are not ready and willing to put on the spiritual altar if we're going to follow him. I mean, I, I mean, I've told my story here before. When I was choosing a college to go to, I was choosing a college, and I had it lined up to go and play basketball at Hardin-Simmons University. But I knew my senior year of high school, that's not where God wanted me to go. I knew where he wanted me to go, and I didn't want to go there because they didn't have a basketball team. The year before, the, that year, my senior year of high school, that team, they had a basketball team, had gotten their first nationally televised basketball game and gotten in a fight on TV. Next day, the president of the university discontinued the basketball program. And I, told, I argued with God for a year and said, I am, there is no way, it was Dallas Baptist, universities. I'm not going, no, God, they don't have a basketball team. You kidding me? I'm not, no. I've already got a thing over here. I've got some financial aid. I got the scholarship. I'm going Abilene, Texas, desert, but they got basketball. And seriously, I argued with God my entire, I knew before my senior even started where he wanted me to go, but I argued with him for a year. And we got to the end of that year, and I said, fine, God. I told Harden Simmons, I'm not coming. I went to look at Dallas Baptist. It was too late at that point. I was a music minister's son. There's no way we could afford it uh, without applying for all kinds of financial aid. <laughs> um, and so I went to junior college there in Pasadena, Texas, my first year trying to get some uh, stuff out of the way. And, and kids, if y'all are getting ready to go to school, go to junior college at least a year. It's the same history class. It's the same government class. And it costs a lot less, like a lot. 
less. You're not even, you don't have any idea. Parents, y'all should show them how much less, it, how much smaller the price is. It's unreal. And it's the same credit. It just won't put your family in the poe house. <laughs> uh, just think about it. Pray about it. God said do it. And so, so that year, I spent at that junior college, and I never forget this. The end of that year, my freshman year at that junior college, um, driving my mom's Astro van to and from school. Kids asked me what, what was my first car. I said, well, it was my mom's car, and I drove it to and from school, and it was an Astro van. Fuel injected, and it was fast. <laughs> and uh, I, my dad and I, at the end of that year, went and saw a movie. It was an action movie, so it was me and him went. And we, we came back in from the movie, and my mom was crying at the kitchen table. What's going on? Something's weird. As a, you know, 19-year-old kid, I'm going to stay back. Mom's crying. It's kind of weird. Um, and so we come in, and she points this envelope on the table. And in the envelope was a check that covered the difference of my first year's tuition at Dallas Baptist University. You say God put something on your heart. You do it. He's going to provide the way every single time. Without a doubt. I mean, I signed up for that school not knowing how we're going to pay for it. I was mad at God because they didn't have basketball. Oh, and on that note, you know when they brought back basketball at DBU? One year after I left. No joke. One year after I, I got a text. My sister went there at that point. She texted me with the announcement, basketball's coming back. I said, of course it is. Uh, I'm not saying God removed basketball for me, but it was not there while I was there. I'm still not bitter. But, and uh, God will always provide when he directs you to go somewhere. Without fail. If you step in faith, like the ram in the thicket, when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, the provision will always be there. Did God supernaturally put the ram in the thicket? Or was it there the whole time? Did God put that ram there the day before and the ram was there and Abraham just didn't notice it? If you look in the scripture, it says Abraham looked over and noticed the ram. God could have supernaturally plopped it there, but the implication from the passage is it was already there and he just didn't see it. God may already be putting the provision in place before you take the step. You just got to take the step. Take the step. Follow the Lord. Allow the disruption to come. Sacrifice the thing he's asking you to, th to sacrifice. Because something that Jesus does, when Jesus comes in your life and he comes with power, Jesus brings disruption. Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Jesus came into the lives of his disciples. One of them fell. Then they, they, they had some other disciples. They brought in another guy. And, and he's, he's meeting with his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And these are his parting words. Having disrupted their lives phenomenally, he's about to blow their minds. Acts 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus, Jesus introduces disruption in the form of the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit... He will come. You will receive power when he comes. He doesn't say if he comes. He says when he comes. The same power that Jesus had to do the miraculous is in every believer because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and Jesus is God. The Spirit is God within us. But that power isn't to be used. The power there in, in verse 8, uh, you will receive power, isn't to be used for every whim that pops into our head. 
You see there that power is to be used to be his witnesses, to tell people about Jesus. And look at that verse. Leave it up there for a little bit, Tony. There's three parts to this verse. If you notice, the coming of the Holy Spirit is not optional. If you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes. Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans 8 verse 9 says, if you belong to the Lord, you have the Holy Spirit. You can't have the Holy Spirit without belonging to the Lord, and you can't belong to the Lord without having the Holy Spirit. It's, it, 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 it's, a, uh, it's a gift that comes together, a free gift. The Holy Spirit comes the second you believe. And so you believe, you get the Holy Spirit whether you want him or not. He's coming. He's coming. I mean, if you believe, you're going to want him. He comes. It's not optional. But notice also, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The power is not optional. Because the power is not yours, the power is the Spirit's. The Spirit comes, and with him comes the power, because the Spirit is God, and he brings the power with him because he's powerful. So the Spirit comes and the power comes. But look at the second part of that verse. You will be my witnesses. Now hang on. You will be. That's a prophecy. You will, you will. If you have the Spirit, you have the power, you will be. But in order to be his witness, we have to decide to be his witness. We have to choose it. Choose to be his witness. Choose to allow this disruption in our lives. That depends on us. And, and being a witness for Jesus, being a witness on behalf of Jesus, it means living and speaking on his behalf. That's not a part-time job that we can clock out of when we get too tired or when we get too uncomfortable or when it requires too much of us or it gets too difficult. It's something that is necessary in every aspect of our lives. But it's also a personal decision that only you can make and nobody can make for you. Will you be that spirit-empowered witness for Christ? Only you can make that decision. Parents can't make it for you. Friends can't make it for you. Spouse can't make it for you. That person in your life who thinks they are the Holy Spirit, they can't make it for you. You have to make that decision. Will you be the Holy Spirit-empowered witness for Christ? All over the place. In Jerusalem, in your city, in Judea, the area around you. Samaria, the, the place that nobody really, that, that people like you don't like. And to the ends of the earth, all over the place. To anybody and everybody, irregardless of where they come from. Will you live and speak the gospel wherever you go? Wherever you go. I'm going to point something out about this decision that it has to be something we pray for God to move, we pray for God to bring power and then we have to decide to be a part of it flip over to a couple pages to Acts chapter 4 let's look at this, we're going to read this, this whole section of scripture uh, this prayer um, and then we're going to see something from it uh, it's a prayer I've referenced several times uh, Peter and John have been in jail two of Jesus' apostles, they've been in jail they get out of prison uh, and they go to see their friends, some other apostles, some other guys, and they're, they're praying together. This is Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, among, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So they pray for, first they pray for boldness, that they would have boldness. Verse 3, or 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So they prayed that they would have boldness as they talk about Jesus. And they prayed that God would do signs and wonders. Verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So there's answer to prayer number one. They prayed that they would have boldness as they speak the word of God. Into verse of two verses later, or some uh, what, three verses later, there's the answer to prayer. They're speaking with boldness. They prayed they would speak in boldness. They're empowered to be a witness for Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and here they are fulfilling that prayer. But then the other thing they prayed for, that God would do signs and wonders, right? The apostles, people in the room, prayed that God would do signs and wonders. Jump down to Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. So they prayed that God would do signs and wonders. But they were the ones who actually went out and did the signs and wonders. God empowered it. God did it through them. They had to choose to be a part of what God was doing. They had to choose to be in what God was going to do, how God was going to bring this about. They had to choose it. And God worked through them. The Lord did the powerfully miraculous through the hands of those who prayed for God to move. It wasn't against their will. They chose to do for God. And they found themselves to be the answer for their own prayer. So when we pray, revive us, O Lord, we need to remember both that revival is highly disruptive, but also highly contagious. But we also need to remember revival is personal before it's widespread. It's personal before it's widespread. We have to choose to be a part of it. We can pray all day long, revive us, O oh Lord. But if we're not willing for the disruption, we're not going to be part of it at all. If we are not revived, our own personal self, then we're not a part of it. We're missing the train. We can pray, revive us, O oh Lord, and we may be thinking specifically about one individual who's, who we feel like is screwing up their lives, and if we're not uh, uh, re being revived ourselves, then we're like the guy with the, the plank in his eye trying to get the speck out of somebody else's eye, and we're missing the point. We've got to be revived. If I'm not in the word, if I'm not dedicating my life to the word and to prayer and all those other characteristics I told you about revival earlier, uh, increased humility, increased financial giving, increased church attendance, increased salvation and baptism and kindness and compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness. If I'm not implementing those areas in my life, then I am not a part of the revival. I'm actually being a hindrance. If I'm gossiping, I'm not a part of the revival. I'm, I'm blocking it. I'm not only blocking it in myself, I'm blocking it into whoever, whomever I'm gossiping to. 
whether the gossip is true or not. Gossip is a negative speak about someone or something else. Doesn't matter if it's true. You can say all day long, I'm not gossiping, it's true. Yeah, it's gossip. You tearing somebody down, that's gossip. Shut that mess down. And if you, let's empower everybody in the room. You hear somebody gossiping, you're empowered to stop it. I don't need to hear that. Mm, stop. I don't need to hear that mess. That's going to tear me down because you're tearing them down. I don't want to be torn down, so stop. If we want to be a part of what God is doing, and anybody who looks at what God's been doing in Queen in our church, let's just say in our church, I and mean, God's been moving to Queen for some time. October 1, last fall, if you were anywhere near our church, there was a tectonic shift. And we saw, I can't even remember now, but it was dozens and dozens and dozens of people saved in the course of three weeks. And it wasn't because I was up here preaching. I was quarantined with COVID. Had nothing to do with me. Had everything to do with God. Everything to do with God. And people willing to follow after the Lord. So do you want to be a part of the movement of God? Do you want revival? Do you want to experience it and see it as, as the history of the, America has seen with the first great, uh, great awakening, the second great awakening, and the third great awakening, and the Jesus movement? What are they going to call this one? Breakout in Arkansas? I don't know. Some kind of crazy name? But it can start. Doesn't matter how big a city it starts in. It can start in a city in southwest Arkansas most of, nobody's ever heard of in the world. Doesn't matter. They've heard of the Lord or they're going to. Do you want to be revived within your own spirit to see it, to experience it, to be there at ground zero when it breaks out? Then you've got to be revived in yourself. It's personal before it's widespread. It will never be widespread if it first doesn't spread through you. So rather than praying, revive us, O Lord, what we need to start praying is revive me, O Lord. Disrupt me, O Lord. Help me be okay with the disruption and the things that I need to sacrifice on your altar because, God, I choose you and your ways. I need to stop like the people that uh, during Haggai's day that were putting off the movement of God because they weren't ready for it. They kept delaying it because they knew it would be a disruption. They knew it would be difficult. They knew they would have to sacrifice. They knew people who have come before who had experienced great revival. There was actually a period of time when people brought stuff to the temple. They brought so much money and gifts to the temple they, that the, the leaders, the spiritual leaders had to say, okay, stop giving. We don't have enough room for all of it. You ever heard a preacher say that? You never heard this one say that, I guarantee you. But that's what happened. The people were so overwhelmed with the power of God that they just kept bringing, kept giving. In, in Corinthians, you know what Paul said? There was this one group, uh, this one church that was crazy poor. Like, like as they say, they were so poor, they couldn't afford the OR. They were just poor. And, and they, they just couldn't afford any, they couldn't afford to, to support themselves. And yet, when Paul goes to minister to the Corinthians, which was a rich town, that's where the rich people live. The rich people didn't support Paul's ministry. The people from the poor church did. 
They paid for Paul's entire ministry, year and a half, while he was ministering to rich people. Not because they wanted, you know, credit, but because they wanted people to know Jesus. They didn't care how much money they had. Paul actually says in his letter to the Corinthians, I had to tell them to stop giving because they were giving beyond their means. They were giving too much than was rational. And this is Paul saying that. And, he said, and what Paul says, he says, I had to tell them to stop because they had so much Jesus in them, they were just giving me everything, you know, to come and minister and bring the gospel to you people. And I had to tell them to stop, but that didn't stop them. They just did it anyway. Saying they didn't need my permission. Jesus was going to help them. They had revival. It caught on there. Has revival caught on in you? Have you ever experienced it or seen it or felt it or touched it and then lost it at some point? What's the difference? We actually see it in Jesus' own disciples. In one chapter in Scripture, they're given the authority to heal people and cast out demons. Two chapters later, they go to heal or cast out a demon to this one boy, and they can't. And they ask Jesus, why couldn't we do it? We could do it back there. Why can't we do it now? What changed in two, what, what changed in us? They lost it. They lost it. Have you been revived? Are you walking in the revival now? Do you want to pray, revive me, O Lord? Well, you got to choose him. Choose him. Choose him over and above everything else. Choose him. Maybe today, you need to choose him for the first time. You need to choose him. Say, you know, Jesus, I've been, I've been fighting with you. I've been arguing with you. I've been arguing with you longer than a year, Jesus, and, and I'm tired of fighting. I'll follow you now. Maybe now you need to believe in Jesus. You're having an argument in your head right now, and you need to believe in Jesus right now. Believe that he's God's son. That he came and he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And maybe it's time to believe in that now. And then what Jesus tells us is, is you're in his hand and no one can pry his fingers off of you. You are his for all time. Will you believe in Jesus today? Will you believe in Jesus Today, will you choose to follow him today? Will you begin to pray, revive me, O Lord. Disrupt me, O Lord. Help me to, pers to persevere even when the disruption comes. Even when you're asking me to sacrifice something that I don't want to sacrifice, something that's difficult and something that's hard, will you sacrifice it anyway and follow after Jesus? I can see it on some of your faces. Some of you, are, you already know what he wants you to sacrifice, and you're having a hard time with it. Don't walk out of this room without placing it on the altar of the Lord. If you're, if you're married, talk to your spouse first. But say, I really think this is what the Lord is doing. Because he may be already doing a work in them you don't even know about. Because he does that. Will you believe in the Lord today? Will you begin to pray, revive me, O Lord? And just try to imagine for a second. What do queen would look like if every single person in this room caught a fire today that never went out? Talk about ground zero of an outbreak. They would say, what in the world is happening down there? Let's start it. This is our line in the sand moment. 
Will you join me on the other side?